You are listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU Radio. I am Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guests today are Eva Vega and Beth Yohi. Eva has been working on reducing racism and other forms of inequity in schools and universities and through coaching for many years. Beth also has been working on reducing racism and other forms of inequity in schools and communities and on providing people with skills for dialogue and conflict transformation for many years. Uh, Evers' uh, identifiers are uh, Latina, Latinx, Puerto Rican, or white presenting Latinx. Beth is a white woman. Eva, when did you uh, first start experiencing um, racial bias or racism? That's a great question, and it depends on um, how we think about it, right? So if we know that bias is in the brain, then I probably have always experienced racial bias in terms of my own uh, understanding of the world. And so my biases are typically oriented to my, to how I situate myself culturally, racially, gender, from a gender perspective, socioeconomic and otherwise. Um, my worldview was expanded or I started to recognize that I had a worldview when I started to um, go outside of my neighborhood. And those, that experience, probably adolescence when we moved from our predominantly Puerto Rican neighborhood to a neighborhood that had more Filipinos, um, African-Americans. And then it expanded once again when I started to occupy more predominantly white spaces in, in high school and in college. And when you were in high school or college, were, um, were things said? directly to you that were blatantly racist? You know, it was a time when, and it's interesting because it's all reflection, right? In the moment, I recognized that my presence was not valued in a predominantly white space when my participation in, it was the, at the time it was the boys club. Um, and I attended the boys club and I, from a different town. and not realizing that, well, it was, it was one of these things where I was from a town that was typically, that is mostly Latino and African-American. And I went to this predominantly white town, the city that was white. And when I wanted to participate, all of a sudden there was rules about who could be members of the club. Um, and that conversation was, I recognized was new to many of the people that were there. They said, that's a rule since when? Right. And so I started to realize that my presence, whether that was because of ethnically or because of like this, this bias against my town um, and what that symbolized racially, socioeconomically, behaviorally, you know, all of those things. I started to recognize that I wasn't valued in that in that moment, um, because then I was started to to kind of, you know, like I was a kid that was extremely um, earnest and I really loved leadership oriented things. Um, and when I, the discussion was emerged to, uh, to become something about me um, representing the boys club in certain spaces, then it got, the discussion started to be more fine print oriented. <laughs> and when you got to college, was there um, which I think was a predominantly white college. Oh, of course, all the time. I, I think, you know, I had, a, I had a moment, my first day of classes at the university I attended, and it was a, it was a racial incident, um, a biased incident, but just clearly overtly racist incident when I was called my, a, a racial slur for the first time. Um, and it, uh, I mean, I heard the term before, but it was like in the atmosphere and it, that was the first time it was wielded to me. 
um, by a white boy who was also from a stat. Yeah, he was also larger than me. Um, so I was fearful because I thought there was some physical element there. Um, but it was the first time that I really had a thought about what that word meant. Why was he wielding it? What was it about me that evoked that much hatred from him? And it actually felt really scary, but I needed time to unpack that before I could um, connect with my body because um, I went to an intellectual space right away um, to go protect myself. And I think for um, many people, even at some point can say they are used to it or dealing with it, it's uh, the fear still can be prominent. Yeah, I mean, I think it does, but I have recognized or, you know, as an adult and as somebody who's doing a lot more work on myself, um, my own racial reflecting, you know, um, starting to unpack what some of the survival techniques I've used, um, which whether that means what techniques I use to get more access in white spaces or what strategies I use to actually genuinely feel to feel more safe um, and starting to kind of untangle that ball as an adult. I don't think I recognized it in the moment though. Um, Beth, uh, how old were you more, you know, more or less, were you when you started to realize that, uh, that bias and hate existed? I think probably my earliest memory, memories are in uh, elementary school. They were sort of um, not, were more general or um, theoretical. Like I remember um, having conversations with friends or friends' parents um, about issues and, and thinking there's something off or there's something wrong, right? Um, like I remember um, being in class and a friend this little boy named Oliver saying, talking about, oh, well, we had to go to the general hospital and there was all these people there that, you know, couldn't afford and like this. Um, and I was young, so I didn't get all of what he was talking about. But I remember thinking my instinct was to be like, well, they deserve service too, right? <laughs> like it was very paternalistic, but we're thinking there was something wrong with what he was saying. And, or a friend whose mom would talk about Mexicans having their cars in the lawn. And I didn't, that was the first time I had heard that. And I knew she indicated that that was a negative, but I didn't understand why. So things like that, I, I do remember in elementary school. Um, and, and so I think that was my first consciousness of people seeing other people differently because of race. And uh, did you at about that same age read um, books that opened up uh, mm -hmm. a pretty ugly world? Yeah, subsequent to that, I think fifth, sixth, seventh grade, I remember starting to read books um, that exactly like you said, opened my eyes to either historical injustices or understanding issues in a different way. Um, in sixth grade, I remember clearly we had to pick a biography and I chose Coretta Scott King. I don't know why, I, like that just drew me to, right? And that was my first sort of specific understanding of the civil rights movement and um, what had happened in our country's past and then, you know, um, going from there. And I remember middle school being a time of me really being interested in a lot of those kinds of concepts and reading the diary of Anne Frank and um, and those kinds of things and and wanting to understand a larger worldview and try to make sense of what was going on in my own life and my own schools because I went to schools that were pretty uh, racially diverse and also segregated at the same time in terms of um, you know my classes were mostly kids who looked like me who were white. Um, despite the fact that um, 
the school was not all white. And so I didn't really make sense of that until I was in college, but I was starting to pay attention to some of those dynamics. Thank you. Um, so Eva, what, when did it um, occur to you or when did you realize that you could um, focus your career at least significantly on issues of race? A, that's a good question. I don't know. I, you know, I sometimes wonder um, when the nature of the work began to become work, right? You know, because a lot of us tap into the work early on. Like I started to do diversity and inclusion work um, for free, trying to create services for myself while I was in college because they didn't have this office. They didn't have an office for um, people like me to support people like me. And so um, I create, I was doing that work as a college work study student, as a part of the student union, um, checking in with students and, you know, like, and just always just seeing myself as like, if I have information, I want to share information. And maybe it's a community oriented approach, or maybe it was, um, like a, just a deep empathy for what people were probably going through since I went through it. I had to navigate college and my college that I went to uh, was 40,000 students. Um, and I was a first generation college person goer. And I sadly didn't get um, to have access to like access programs. I wasn't, um, I didn't qualify for those things. And so I was just navigating it as a person of color outside of the narrow frame that existed. And so I created a frame for myself and I offered that frame for others. Um, and I think I have always gra like gravitated to helping spaces. And so, you know, I worked in the university space um, as a way, as a means to pay for my university experience. And then I continued that pattern in graduate pro in my graduate program in order to provide not only services for myself and others, but also to fund my education. I didn't have an option otherwise. Um, I was trying to assume the least amount of debt as possible. Um, and that wasn't possible, but at least I had some of it underwritten and I had access to the spaces um, a little bit more. And it wasn't until yeah. I graduated that I actually formally entered into the work when I entered, when I became a director of multicultural student affairs, and it was an office that was being initiated. Like I was the first person in the role. Yeah, I, I, I think it's true for um, a lot of people. And I think for me, I was, I was doing work in high school as well. I don't think I could have um, been articulate in describing uh, what I was doing, or perhaps why, but but I was doing it. Um, Beth, what about what about you? Um, uh, when did you realize that there was a path you could take that would be focusing on these issues? Um, I think it's similar to Eva. I think we we share some of the pieces in terms of. Um, being drawn toward helping and and interested in leadership kinds of things um, in college, um, obviously, you know, different. We went to very different colleges. I grew up um, in Texas, um, but having that interest and in, and in looking for those things. And so, for me, I um, ended up getting involved in um, the Department of Multicultural Affairs. So the university I went to had, had an office and, um, and I don't remember how I got connected up, but they were just starting this group. It was of, of peer leaders do, to do what at the time was called multicultural you know, training. It was called University Awareness for Cultural Togetherness. Um, and so that was like my first foray, if you will, into that whole area and the idea of doing intentional work around biases and to address racism and sexism and those kinds of things. I was involved in other things at the university as well, you know, more 
student leadership and, and those kinds of things. But it was really you act in that work with um, within the Department of Multicultural Affairs that um, gave me the idea that this was even a thing, right? <laughs> like, um, and this was interesting work and that um, there were ways to do, to do that um, in your life, you know, in an intentional way. Uh, and, and, and I think for both of you um, that you went on to graduate school to try to get um, presumably both information, but also the credibility that going to graduate school gives to be able to get certain kinds of jobs. I think that may be sort of true, but sort of not. I felt I left college feeling like I didn't have enough answers as it related to race. <laughs> and, and I'm, you know, I double majored in English and sociology and almost exclusively um, focused on race, um, you know, through, through the different prisms of um, social dynamics, but also from, you know, almost, you know, and, and reading literature and so on and so forth. But I felt like I didn't have enough. So I went to my master's degrees in sociology and I attended a graduate program that had the intention of establishing a race center. It actually was, was that the new school? The new school, yeah. And um and the new school, you know, approached education in the way in a way that was supposed to be outside of the box and that appealed to me. Sadly, they didn't have the funding to manifest that. But through that process, I was able to, again, in an interdisciplinary way, approach seeking knowledge, right? Or I, I sought knowledge in an interdisciplinary way around race and racism in the United States. Um, so I think it, for me, it was more of an, like a deeper intellectual desire than it was job oriented. I don't think I even thought that far ahead. I actually, you know, I, I, <laughs> it was more practical. Like I just wanted to know more. Well, that makes sense. I'm going to ask you the same question, but just hold a minute that uh, you are listening to Che Changes Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU. I am Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guests today are Eva Vega and Beth Yoey. Eva has been working on reducing racism and other forms of inequity in schools and universities and through coaching for many years. Beth also has been working on reducing racism and other forms of inequity in schools and communities and on providing people with skills for dialogue and conflict transformation for many years. So, uh, uh, Beth, well, you you also went on to graduate school. Yes, um, and I think mine was a little bit more vocation oriented. I I wanted I graduated from college with recognition that I wanted to continue um, a path that allowed me to look into diversity training or seeking that in some way as part of my career, and so I was looking into it, kind of realized there was probably two paths, sort of like the organizational HR kind of path or student affairs um, in higher education. And I chose the latter and went to college in a program in student affairs and higher education, but with a particular um, focus on um, diversity education and having the opportunity to do that. Um, and Kyle, uh, just so people listening know that uh, um, that this isn't the first time that Eva and Beth have have met. So, uh, when when was the first time that you started working together? Where, what organization were you working working for? My, I just had a moment. I was like, "What year was that?" And it was probably around two thousand ten. And was that at ADL? Oh, sorry, at the Anti-Defamation League. Yes. Yes. Okay. And uh, and what kind of uh, the, the Anti-Defamation League is an organization that uh, was started by Jews and focuses on 
trying to reduce bias, prejudice, and hatred toward people from any groups. Um, and what were both of you doing there? Well, specifically, the ADL is organized with a lot of different branches. And the branch that Beth and I worked in was, was primarily the, in the education sphere and probably most notably the World of Difference Institute, which does the anti-bias education that ADL um, does across the country. And so I was, I joined, I had been a trainer for ADL since 1999, but I joined as a professional staff person in the Los Angeles project. Um, and Beth was working for the national office in, in the education. Exactly. I was, um, I don't remember my title, but I was overseeing, you know, some of the, the training work and train the trainers and development of our training materials for a World of Difference Institute. Um, and part of my role was um, doing onboarding and orientation for new um professionals in edu the education area in the different regional offices. And so I was uh, paired with Eva and that's how we first um, really got to know each other. Okay. Um, and a, uh, a long and continuing friendship. Yes. Um, so um, Eva, can you describe the work you um, have been doing, you know, this this year and ongoing, um, you you know you you have a variety of different things that you you do, and then Beth, um, interested in the same from you. So for me, you know, the nature of the work um, for me um, has a lot of alignment with, with what my interests are. Um, and they've grown, they've evolved, they've expanded, they've contracted in a lot of different ways. Um, I've moved from having an interest in anti-bias work to uh, almost singular focus on anti-racism work um, and most especially liberation and healing work, um, navigating and thinking much about the impact of racism on individuals and racial bodies. Um, and, um, and I just ask a question, um, is that both the impact on people of color as well as on white people? Yeah, I think it, it is because I think of myself more these days, I think of myself as an educator, but I also am really expanding in my own understanding of this work as an educator healer, because there is so many things in our society and our in our in our in our respective communities that need healing in order for us to truly manifest in the ways that I think many people in their conscious minds um believe desire want but in our unconscious defaults um don't necessarily have the underpinnings or the or the foundations from which to manifest in the ways that we want to in terms of a racially just society and so well, I think that I've, so just just to answer the question is like I've done that in a lot of different ways. I still continue to do workshops and consult. Um, Beth and I do work in that way and we collaborate. Um, but I also do that. I have a podcast um, pursuing in pursuit of cross-racial um, friendship. Um, and so that's what I'm more of a creative effort. And I am also doing more content creation in general and blogging and, and things of that nature. And uh, just sort of um, briefly, what does coaching involved? You're, you're, you're not oh, right, and then there's coaching. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I think for a lot of people, they think, well, well, maybe you coach a basketball team. So, so what in this context does coaching mean? So I do different kinds of coaching and the coaching that I enjoy the most is what's called transformational coaching. And it's really coaching the whole person, not just in the professional realm, but it's about connecting and, um, and um, reintegrating the, the individual, the soul, the what's underneath the surface of the individual, right. And um, attending 
to naming, exploring, and um, helping to elucidate what's happening for the individual and then its implications in personal and interpersonal or professional spaces. And so um, we do a lot of, I do a lot of equity oriented transformational coaching in the sense that like for white people who identify as white, they may come to me because they want to become bolder allies. They really want to explore what might be getting in the way of them manifesting what their desires are, um, or really wanting to have more of a tailored experience and understanding things like anti-racism, because it's been a, a topic of late in a lot of workplaces, a lot of just public sphere conversations, and people just are stuck and want to get past it and want to um, acknowledge that they they're, they're a good person who doesn't seem to get it right enough um, to satisfy some of the generational differences that we have around what, what does it mean to be racist in society? So I do that, but I also work with a lot of people of color who are really trying to understand themselves as racialized beings and in, the, in some of the ways that as people of color, black, indigenous, and other people of color, how, we, how we've been impacted by racism and what are some of the things that we are doing to act, that actually might be perpetuating white supremacy in ways that we don't understand. And so that's, for that, it's about an excavating it's about a personal exploration about some of the ways that we might be doing that to ourselves and to others. Well, um, thank you for doing that work. I think that it's gotta be um, it's not just anybody who can bring out the kind of issues that you've talked about and helping people change. I mean, it's possible, but I think that at the point when someone is reaching out to somebody like me, they've they've already acknowledged that they want, they have a yearning um, and a desire to move past where they are. And so that intrinsic motivation, coupled with a little bit of accountability and a little bit of prodding and support and deeper listening, um, you know, helps can help some folks get to the next step, right, of a lifelong journey. And uh, Beth, what, um, can you talk about the work you're doing now? And I know it's a, a number of different things, but but you are the executive director of an organization in Denver. Yes, so I am the executive director of the Conflict Center, which is a small nonprofit located in Denver. And our mission is to equip people with the practical skills to embrace and transform everyday conflict. Um, and we do that in a variety of ways, but I certainly see and understand um, an intersection with the kinds of work that we're talking about today, um, that if we're really able to understand conflict in a different way, we have to look at how um, our identities and our biases play into how we, how we navigate, how we address um, how we experience conflict. And so certainly, um, providing skills and tools is the main part of what we do. We really are an education and training organization at its heart. And then looking at what are the practical ways and some of the practical ways is to, to mine more clearly, what are our biases? How does implicit bias show up? Um, how do we understand our identities? As well as other skills to, to reframe and transform conflict in our lives. Um, and and another piece of our work is restorative practices, which really speaks to, um, I think is connected to what Eva's talking about in terms of healing and restorative practices at their heart are about repairing harm and healing um, and building relationships and navigating relationships in a different way than our traditional societal sort of punitive blaming approach. And so I see all of those things as as interconnected and as um, integral to us as people and as a society um, doing things differently, right? Like navigating our world differently. And I think for the work that both of you are doing is not only really important, but, but I also think is, is very difficult. Um, so I'm, I'm curious for both of you and whoever wants to go first, 
um, to talk about in in your life has has racism changed and if so is it changing for um, for good reasons for things or such as is racism reducing or is it or what? What, what, do you, what do you see? You've been doing this for quite a while. Beth, why don't you take it first? I'm interested in hearing what you say. I, I, you, you probably know what I'm going to say, but go ahead. Um, I think that racism, at, you know, as a driving force in our country has one of the reasons that it continues is because as a societal force, there's a strong ability to change and adapt to the current circumstances, right? Like it's, it's always been there, constantly evolving. So um, my first thought is, of course, racism has changed, because that's how it continues to operate, right? Um, While still, there's still, of course, those those places of explicit racism that, you know, are, are clear thread back throughout our history. Um, but there are more um, sort of implicit and <clears throat> even, if you will, sneaky ways that racism shows up in our society and in our lives all the time. So I think it does change and adapt. We can see that from, just as an example, from the more um, overt Jim Crow laws, right, during um, and before and leading up to the civil rights movement, um, and to now how our criminal justice and our prison systems operate um, seemingly in a quote, colorblind way, but still very much reinforcing um, racist impacts and systemic racism as just one example. Um, But I I think racism is constantly evolving and changing um, and kind of ebbs and flows in terms of explicit and um, implicit. I mean, in the last four years or so, we've definitely seen more explicit manifestations of racism that it's not, they're not not new. They're just sort of rising up. um, If you think of like waves or or a tide or something like that. Well, and perhaps... uh many people who had those views uh, over the last four years felt that it was now acceptable to uh, engage in um, in significant and direct uh, racial bias because there are leaders who right. um, have gained a whole lot of, of of ground in electoral politics by by engaging in that ugly form of bias. For sure, I think we see it in that way. I think um, politics certainly has articulated if views that then people grasp onto for um, many different reasons, um, and then feel emboldened to be able to articulate as well. Um, I, I think politics especially is really good at, um, you know, politicians often use the tact of finding someone to blame, right? Like if there are troubles in your life and there are circumstances that are challenging, or if things just haven't turned out the way that you thought they would, I think, um, it's human nature to want to blame someone and politicians take advantage of that and give groups, right? And give scapegoats um, to blame. And we, of course, have seen that throughout our history. Um, A very successful tactic for um, politicians to play on those, on that human nature. Yeah, sadly it is. Um, You are listening to J-Changions, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU. I am Steve Westler, the host of Change Agents. My guests today are Eva Vega and Beth Yoey. Eva has been working on reducing racism and other forms of inequity in schools and universities through and through coaching for many years. Beth also has been working on reducing racism and other forms 
of inequity in schools and communities and on providing people with skills for dialogue and conflict and transformation for many years. Uh, Eva, uh, coming back to the question, um, I mean, there certainly have been times and uh, when President Obama was elected and some people said, uh, well, we're now a post-racial um, society. Uh, um, where are we? Um, are things getting worse? Are they getting better? Is, is it hard to tell? I think that the what became most evident at the time when um, President Obama was elected was the um, the effectiveness of some of the politici- politicalization of um, of our differences and our needs and the blaming um, attitudes and like how easy it was to scapegoat um, particularly black indigenous and um, immigrants and Latinx people, right? Um, and so, and how how simple it was to just replicate scapegoating in all the ways that we've seen scapegoating manifest in history um, and how efficient it was because, um, and so it, to me, it did, you know, it, it, it just revealed what communities of color always knew, communities of color always spoke to and said, um, and, and was never, we were never paid attention to. So I think it was really more about, it just revealed what we always knew. Now, whether it's better or worse, I think what it revealed to me, if I put my educator hat on, it also revealed um, how the strategy of pointing to racism as intentional, egregious, overt kind of racism, like how, and, and how so many, the approach was to kind of address that kind of hatred. Um, really failed as a strategy because so many people didn't understand how it replicates, how racism is replicated structurally, how it, how it manifests internally um, in terms of like how simple it was for somebody to have a, to have a simple racial bias to turn into racial prejudice within um, one, one election um, and, and, and move beyond racial prejudice to bigotry so quickly within two, within two terms. Um, and we're feeling the effects of that now. So I feel like it has changed in the sense that we're looking at racism and the nuance in a different way. I think where more people are talking about structural racism, more people are disrupting this misnomer that white supremacy is the card carrying bigots who, um, you know, come together in meetings um, to express hatred. We're now understanding and unpacking the nuances to understand that from an ideological perspective, white supremacy has always been the way we've understood the racial hierarchy and race in our nation. And I think those conversations are happening now. Those conversations for some are perceived to be example of it getting worse. But when I have my educator hat on, I feel like those are examples of evidence that we're actually getting to do the real work that has always needed to get done. I think that's a really good point. Um, uh, Unfortunately, uh, what I would refer to as um, uh, white violent supremacists um, are, appear to be increasing. Um, and, And something that I think for all of us is really worried about it. Um, the people who can walk into a to a room or a building and and simply uh, kill people because of their their race or their religion. Sure. Um, so. Can you can each of you talk about a uh, particular kind of work and maybe uh, with an example of what that has been successful? Can you say a little bit more about what you're looking for? 
I'm looking for um, for work that you've done and you, we've been able to see, for example, when working in schools that that the culture of the school has changed. It doesn't mean that that racism and other forms of prejudice and bigotry have disappeared, but that there's come um, or even just working in in the uh, Beth, what you do um, and your colleagues to um, empowering people with to deal with conflict or or have a UN working one on one with people. I think it's for me. It's a. It's you know. I've, I'm also an administrator at a school, and um, is, it, is this a high school? It's um, a nursery through eight. A private independent school that's been under a lot of um, uh, criticism for for what is for for the it's a backlash against anti-racism work, um, anti-racism work that probably uh, increased after the George Floyd murder and um, and the impact of being on quarantine and everybody's collective um, ability to pay attention. Um, and so we had been doing the work for four years at the town school or for three years previous to this, to this moment in time. But what I have noticed that has been the most impactful is has been doing the work together, but also understanding that conflict is a necessary, um, it's a necessary part, open conflict, open struggle. And it is a necessary part of what the work is. And sometimes people think that this work is really about reading the book and, and you know, like learning the things that you need to learn and then moving on. But it's as, as much about excavation of our thinking and our way of in, interacting and engaging in what anti-racism work is as much as it is, you know, learning some of the foundation principles that need to be. And so I think for me, like evidence that this is working is that we're able to struggle more. We are able to struggle and stay in community. Um, and, and we've incorporated a significant amount of reflection as a way of doing business um, and asking ourselves, what am I, what am I missing? What, what, you know, what is it that I'm missing that, that, that I, what feedback do I need to get? Um, and, and what does that look like in an everyday practice? So I feel like that has shifted for, for the school that I work in personally, I mean, at the moment, and, and that's really been a nice, um, it's a nice indicator that we're on, we're, we're on the train is on the track and moving because we're able to do that more seamlessly than it was before, because, you know, we could be in workspaces of feeling like perfection, um, is the only, is the only way to be. And, uh, at least in the, the work that I've done in schools, you can uh, get that kind of positive movement. But unless it's um, something that becomes uh, part of what the school does, it, it'll slip right back. Yeah, it's really about, it's about leadership having resilience and demonstrating that and believing that we'll move through it, but this first part is pretty hard. And so, and it, and it's going to be several years before you get to the other side of it, where it actually, you can actually notice the trust of a community build, the connection build, the, you know, the, the, you move from tolerance to an embracing of the work in a, in a matter of years when you, when you actually double down, triple down and commit past or in the spaces that feel the most hard. Um, and in my coaching, that's part of what it is that I'm doing with leadership in particular and helping them navigate for themselves how to get through this part, how to toe the line in a way that is genuine, authentic. What do you do? What are you doing to model vulnerability? Not like neediness, but vulnerability. Um, how can you move from pushing things away to like an openness? What needs to open? Um, how can you open? Um, you got to pay the bills, but at the same time, what is it that the folks around you, what, you, what do they need to see from you? So that, you. that's been a shift. Yeah. Um, and Beth, what about you? Um, um, whether it's uh, in the conflict res resolution or 
field or in other ways? What's, what's, what's positive that you're saying? Well, what Eva's talking about really resonates with me in this um, piece of culture change and, and doing the hard work. Um, and I, and for me, one of, and especially in the last 10 years or so, it's been more and more clear for myself that I feel like one of the pieces of calling, if you will, for me is really working with other white folks, right? Um, in spaces to do our own work and to dig in and do those hard pieces, right? Um, and because recognizing that, um, and we've seen it in the last year, people, a lot of white folks, you know, something clicked for them or resonated differently after the murder of George Floyd. And people really, I think, genuinely wanting to engage in this work for themselves, right? And really understand racism and their role in racism in a different way. And it's hard work. And the reality is for a lot of white people is this is how, how our culture plays out, right? We can, we can step away, right? It can be something we can choose to engage into or step away from. So that piece of staying in it and recognizing that like if we really wanna to connect to our own humanity and do work around racism, we have to choose to stay in it. And that is a piece that I feel like has been important for me and working with other white folks. And corollary to that, the other thing that I see is white folks who maybe have, have done, however you want to say it, done more work or, or spent more time or, or, you know, what have you, can be super judgy of white folks that are, you know, newer to, to, to their awakening, if you will. Um, and so also being really aware of the dynamics of how white supremacist culture shows up among white, white people in this sort of what I see as a competition to be the good white person, right? And show up and like, I know this better. Um, and really recognizing that our role is to work with other white folks. And that means seeing ourselves in the people um, that are behaving in ways that are troubling to us or um, engaging with folks who are in the place of naming explicit racism um, differently. So that has been a, a piece for me that it's felt really important. Um, and like all things, there are places where it's been more successful than others, right? Because it's a journey. Um, um, but I feel like I, ha I do have success and, and perhaps a, an affinity for connecting with folks in that way and recognizing the struggle and being able to support um, as I do for myself, you know, the, our own process of <laughs> recognizing how racism shows up in ourselves. Yeah, it's a gift that, that you have and, and uh, that both of you have. Um, and uh, and the the other people that do the kind of work that you do, we need to have more and more people doing that work. Come, um, you are listening to Change Agents Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guests today are Eva Vega and Beth Yogi. Eva has been working on reducing racism and other forms of inequity in schools and universities through coaching for many years. Beth also has been working on reducing racism and other forms of inequity in schools and communities and on providing people with skills for dialogue and conflict transformation for many years. I'd like to to turn to and the continuing disturbing issue of, of police officers, mostly white, shooting and killing unarmed black people and other people of color. The 
I, I, I think that, that I, I thought that coming after the, the conviction okay, in Minneapolis that uh, there would at least be for some amount of time a reduction in killing of unarmed black people and other people of color. And yet uh, what we had in that next two weeks was it just felt like it had become far more quickly. So, so why was that happening? I think what is becoming more clear is that the system, these moments, these flashpoints are evidence of a greater problem with racial bias that exists, racial prejudice at times within the individual. Um, and there've been enough research in the last, let's call it decade, about the professional development practice or the, you know, or like the training of police officers and all the ways that racial bias is in uh, their professional practices informed in that way. I mean, Resma Menekat in my grandmother's hands, he talks about um, racial trauma. And one of the things that he talks about that is unique and it is, and is not done enough is that he talks about police officers as racialized bodies that are distinguished differently than white, he called them white bodied and uh, black bodied people. But he also talks about law enforcement in the trauma that they receive in their own training. And that is established within their pr professional practices. And so for him, he doesn't necessarily discern between the white police officer as just the police officer, right? Because it's in the training. It, it's, it's sadly something that needs to be thought about from, from, a from, in, in, from the individuals that play this role, but also to the training and all of the of ways that that impacts the individuals who do this work. Um, so I don't necessarily, you know, I, I personally recognize that it's been an institutional issue as much as it has been a structural cultural ideas issue um, around what race is, because all of those things inform what happens in every moment. Um, Beth, your thoughts? I, I agree with Eva. Um... So while it was incredibly hard to see that, you know, so many lives were lost just in that week that um, Derek Chauvin's trial um, was wrapping up, it was also not surprising because we know that this is an ongoing, ongoing issue. Um, and I think part of our challenge is for many and sort of the larger national conversation, it continues to be a need to, for many people to reaffirm like, oh, there are good police officers and bad police officers, right? Or the, the you know, bad apple piece or um, instead of recognizing that this is more than the individual people and the choices that they made, um, which is why we see it happen in different police departments in different places all over the country. Um, similar to the disparities we see in educational achievement and discipline in schools all over the country, that it's, you know, that it's not just about an individual making a choice, that there's something else to Eva's point going on. Um, and we know in many ways what that something else is, right? Um, because it's embedded in our practices and policies, which means if something's, when we talk about systemic racism, I think sometimes people then separate that out from themselves as people, right? But we are the systems. So if it's embedded in the systems, it's embedded in us. And then it's showing up, um, you know, routinely and regularly in um, these incidents. And so there has to be a deeper excavation to Eva's point and how these systems are set up and how we then as people are um, part of them. 
Can I just add that one of the things that has been that we know more today about is how many um, police officers have are have some connection with what you like what you conceptualize as white violent extremism, but also white nationalist groups or nationalist groups, right, that are rooted in this belief that this is about um, preserving the United States in whatever element of, or whatever integrity they think that the United States holds, right, as an idea that is in and of itself meaning white supremacy, right? Because they may not use the language in white nationalism, in nationalism, but it's white supremacist nationalism. Um, And those groups and that participation of law enforcement in those spaces, has absolutely surged um, since the Obama administration. ADL had done quite a bit of research on this. um, And in terms of the uptick of those of of people participating in that, I don't think they necessarily did the work with about law enforcement, but there's, I know the Southern Poverty Law Center is certainly speaking to that. Um, And I think it's important to explore what that means in terms of it's, influence in the culture of policing as much as it means what it might imply when you have a group of four or five police officers respond, right? Because you also have this culture of hierarchy within law enforcement, right? And structure and, um, and part, and, um, you know, that militarized element too is another thing that we really need to grapple with in terms of what is an acceptable demonstration of violence um, in a, in a space, all of those things are interwoven into these things that, that really make this a really toxic and hurtful and violent cocktail for communities of color, particularly black people. Um, you know, I, I had thought it would be, um, we're, we're almost out of time here to kind of, to, to end with something that could be positive, but um, but really what is positive is, is sitting and listening and talking and learning about what is really, really disturbing. Because until uh, so many white people, so many more white people start under, understanding that uh, we're not going to have the change. Um, anybody, uh, if you want to have a one sentence to, to each. To mm-hmm. Well, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged that more and more people are, are in their awakening and demonstrating a willingness to try. Thank you. Um, Beth, one sentence. Yeah, I agree. Um, And I am encouraged. I do see that willingness to try in lots of ways. And I, and so, and people asking different questions and staying in conversations in different ways. There's certainly lots more to do as we've discussed, but I agree with Eva. Um, I'm encouraged. And well, Thank you for the work that both of you are doing. Um, it's difficult and it's incredibly important. You are listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU. I am Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guests today are Eva Vega and Beth Yoey. Eva has been working on reducing racism and other forms of inequity in schools and universities and through coaching for many years. Beth also has been working for reducing racism and other forms of inequity in schools and communities and on providing people with skills for dialogue and conflict transformation for many years. Thank you so much for the work you've done and we'll continue to do in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so did it go by faster than you thought? Sure, I can, I can be 
in conversation about this for hours. <laughs> yeah, well, that I know. I have a. But you, you, you two, you We're two marathoners, <laughs> and there's always so many more things. I'm like, oh, I meant to say this, and oh, I would have added that. Yes. Yeah, you, you were wonderful, and and uh, separately, but together, even better. It was. <laughs> Um, That's usually the case for me. I'm always better when I'm with Eva. So, um, so uh, uh, this will be uh, aired in June, and uh, once it's aired, um, I'll be able to send each of you the link to um, be able to do whatever you want with with the recording. That's great. Thanks for the invitation, Steve. Really yeah. nice. well, thank you for, for doing this. Um, yeah, thanks for including me, Eva. And uh, I <laughs> have, a, have a nice rest of your day. Thanks. Uh, okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.